Welcome to Conversation Pace. I'm your host, Brian Rossetti. In episode 28, I spoke with James McCurdy, founder and head coach of McCurdy Train. McCurdy Train is currently one of the largest private coaching groups online, with beginners all the way up to Olympic trials qualifiers under their care. Pay attention to the phrase, under our care. That's what I think is the key in the story. This is a huge coaching, but also business success story. Think about this, in 2016, they had eight Boston qualifiers and zero Olympic trials qualifiers. That was their first year. Now they're up into the hundreds of BQs, and they recently had 25 athletes in their group. Some were coaches, qualified for the 2020 Olympic trials and the marathon. In this episode, we discuss moving and transitioning to life in Flagstaff in the East Coast, starting the Curdy Train and how it's grown so quickly, what quote-unquote under our care means to him and where it comes from. We discuss the Olympic Trials Women's B Standard and his coaching staff, which has now grown to over two dozen coaches. Who are they, why, and how do athletes get matched? Finally, the launch of their micro-marathons to give athletes something to shoot for this spring in a safe and encouraging environment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. James McCurdy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a long time since we've spoken uh, and certainly seen each other, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. How are you guys holding up? We're well, you know, um, it's been a it's been a tough year uh, physically. I had some some personally some some physical things that I had to kind of battle back through. I had a kind of a hernia that that blocked me from training at the end of last year, and I was kind of rebounding from that. And then I had a a little bit of a foot issue that popped up due to a a jammed ankle. And then uh, Heather had two calf surgeries. Really, she had four because she had two on each leg over the course of the entire year. So physically, it's been kind of a rough year for us, but I think we're doing okay, especially through the chaos that that 2020 brought. Uh, We are definitely excited for the new year, though. (laughs) Lots of chaos, that's for sure. Um, What's, um, I wanted to, I mean, you guys, when did you guys move to Flagstaff again? It was actually three years ago, two days ago. Uh, January 6th of 2018 is when we officially pulled into Flagstaff. Wow. What's, what's yeah. the biggest, what's the biggest difference going from the East coast well, um, to Flagstaff? What's the, the biggest transition for you? Sunlight is huge. I mean, just from a, from a physical standpoint, um, sunlight, there's like 320 days of sun here. And even the cloudy days are sunny. <laughs> it's, <rare. laughs> it's incredibly rare that we have an entire day of clouds where we can't see the sun. It, it's, so, it's so incredibly rare. That's the data? That's the stat? I, I never would have guessed I think that. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, it's at elevation. You know, I think that there's always something to consider that. So there's... It's not nearly as warm a lot. Even my mom still says, oh, isn't it 110 degrees there? Where are you? No, mom. We're, at- <laughs> we're a mountain town. It's The, the community, is, it, for the most part, is tight-knit, I think. Um, and that matters. Uh, yeah. It's just different. Like I, I, grew up, I grew up in Connecticut, you know? And every town in Connecticut 
with the exception of just a few, you are seven miles away from the next center of town. Yeah. You know, like here, we are surrounded by forest. Does that make you anxious or no? Does that make me anxious? Yeah. No. No, I love it. I love it. I do miss driving from town to town and being able to run in different areas. Oh, I'm going to go over to Avon, Connecticut and run on the trail. I'm going to go down to New Haven, Connecticut and run on the trail. I'm going to, I'm going to take a train and, or drive two and a half hours and I'll be running in Central Park. Right. Hour and a half. You know, I, I do miss that aspect from a training standpoint. But training here is heaven on earth. You know? Uh, training right. always says it's the best place in the world to train. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I literally just yesterday, I was pulling out of my driveway and uh, Thank God I looked behind me because I almost, if I didn't, I would have run over Shelby Houlihan. (laughs) (laughs) I was on a run and I passed some of the men of the Bowerman Club, including Matt Sensowitz. Nice. And do they go up there? Just they do stints up there, right? I, this is the first time I've ever seen any members of the Bowerman Club here in town. Um, For years, they had gone to Park City, but I guess. Uh, this year they've decided to spend their, their altitude stint, so to speak, or this one here in Flagstaff. Oh, okay. I thought they had been doing it for, for fairly recently, but, um, that's good to hear another group popping in, uh, or, or do you, do you feel like it's too much? Like what, what is the scene like? Cause it's changed a lot since the last I've been there with the camps. Do you feel like it's getting to be crazy or sometimes you never see anyone? I mean, this year is different. There's not a lot of traveling going right. on. Right. You know what I mean? However, um, it, it, we, because universities didn't really have seasons, many college universities, uh, their teams, their cross-country teams, their track teams came to Flagstaff to live and train for three or four months because their seasons were canceled. So why not? So we did see, you know, Georgetown was out here. I think Ole Miss was out here for a little while. We saw many smaller universities as well in terms of just that's what they decided to do because their seasons were canceled and, and they can go to school online. Um, but it's weird. Like a lot of people, oh, man, you're so lucky. Flagstaff, it's, it's you know, it, it, it is the training ground. You must run with everybody. That's not true, you know, especially this year. But even in years past, it's not like everybody meets up every single day to run. No, it, it's an opportunity for you to train. And for the most part, uninterrupted. And if you're on a team, that's great. But and even though some of the teams uh, will will be uh, courteous to run with a few uh, unknowns from time to time, for the most part, everybody stays inside of their own group uh, because they have their own training going on. What about track access? Is that a pain in the butt or no? This year, especially, just like everywhere else in the country, <laughs> um, there's only one track that we are allowed to use here in town right now, especially this year. Um, we have been granted access uh, uh, we, to, to NAU's indoor track, Northern Arizona University's indoor track, but that is not going to be the case this year. Actually, even the indoor track team doesn't have access to it because it's covered yeah. up. Uh, I think football's in there. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't even, the indoor track team doesn't even have access to it. 
Um, and what's, the what's the status on the indoor season? I don't even know. For so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not too connected with it, oddly enough. But I do believe there are going to be championships in March uh, that also coincide with the cross country championships. Right. <laughs> that's crazy. So it's a little. I mean, that's that's a little more outside of my realm. Maybe it shouldn't be because of of the professional scene. You know, it's kind of a feeder for a professional uh, level right. athlete. To me, um, I don't have too much connection with the college scene just because of our priorities with who we serve and, and what our focus points are. Yeah, we'll get into that for sure. Um, I, I wanted to ask, like moving to Flagstaff, I've seen a lot of people do it in the last several years, especially from the East Coast. How has it changed you as a per- person and as a Well, coach? when I came out here in July of 2015, I came out here. Uh, with the Run Smart Project, your business, uh, uh, <laughs> as, as a camper. You know, I was a client, uh, just like many people listening probably are. Uh, and I, 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 that was my first introduction. I've heard about Flagstaff. I never really understood. I never really saw too many pictures of it. Um, a few videos here or there, but not, not a ton. Um, and I, I kind of fell in love with it. You know, I, I had vacation eyes, definitely. You know, you go to a place. And you see all the greatest spots and the great restaurants and you get shown around to the, the highlights of where, uh, of what the town or the, the location you are has to offer. Of course, you're going to fall in love with it anywhere, right? But then, then in July of 2017, Heather and I came out here for a two-week period. And towards the end of that trip, it was kind of that same vacation concept, you know, step away from work. And and just enjoy the town, run with a, a few friends, and uh, and we did. So we we lived with Matt Yano, uh, former coach with us, uh, and a, a good friend of ours still. Um, mm-hmm. And we uh, we lived with him. And oddly enough, Matt Fitzgerald, the author, uh, was was living there at the time as well, and training with NAV at the time. Um, and at the end of that trip, Heather kind of fell in love with Flagstaff. I saw her, I caught her actually on her phone looking at Zillow. And I was like, you know, we could live here. You work from home, she's an engineer. She was an engineer at that point. She worked uh, as a contractor for, for a, a company who was contracted to work for the US government. She worked on radar and, and software development, really, really smart, um, high end stuff. And, uh, so, you know, you work from home. What if what if we didn't tell anybody and we came back for like three weeks and we didn't tell anybody? We just worked and lived our life and saw how that or if that interrupted our daily lives at all. And she agreed. So just a few weeks after we got home from that first trip, we planned to come back again. And the purpose of the trip was to work and live a normal life, but also take a look around town and, and look at some places to live and what apartments we might enjoy living in and what, where we don't want to live. And, uh, and we, we decided that, you know, the lease was, was ending in just two and a half months. Uh, our close friends, Michael and Sarah had just moved out there in July as well. So we, we just, we just packed up and left. We, we drove across country. <laughs> Actually, it, it was kind of funny. Initially we were going to tow a trailer in <laughs> Heather's cross trek. I sold my car and we were going to pack up a trailer and tow it across the country in her, in her cross trek. But there was, 
once we realized how much stuff we actually had, we actually had to rent a truck. Uh, <laughs> There's no way we're going to be able to do it. Uh, so we drove the 2,300 miles across the country. Uh, took us about four and a half, five and a half days. And uh, she was driving her car. I was driving mine. And we moved in. We left on New Year's Eve uh, of 2017. And we got here January 5th or January 6th of 2018. Wow. So yeah. it was just kind of like running vacation for you. And then she was kind of like, hey, yeah. why don't we move here? So, you, yeah. Do you feel like you were kind of. Were you struggling on the East Coast, like looking for change, but just never expected no. to leave? Or was it just kind no. of. Yeah, I I had up until. Maybe for only I should say only 30 days of my life, 30 days of my life, did I live outside of Connecticut? Up until up until we moved out here, only thirty days. I mean, I traveled a little bit, but I never lived anywhere. You know, so Connecticut has always been home. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, Heather was born and raised in upstate New York, uh, just outside of Syracuse, and she ended up going to Syracuse University. Uh, and I had always called Connecticut home, but I never, even though my family's there, many of my close friends are are from there. My best friends from high school. You know. Uh, I never felt like it was my home, you know, like I was raised there. I, I still remember every half mile marker on almost every single road that I ever ran in West Hartford, Connecticut, as well as Woodbury, where my parents still live. You know, like I, I just I, I knew it so well, but I never felt like it was home. And when I came out to Flagstaff, yeah, my best friend, Bill, and his soon to be wife. No, no. At that point, they were married. Um, for a few years, actually, he, they, they both said, you know, you seem so happy here. Why don't, why don't you consider moving here? This is where you're meant to be. (laughs) It it wasn't available to me at that time. It wasn't the right time in my life who I was with. It wasn't going to work. It was never going to be something that was going to be a reality. And it wasn't until Heather came into my life and until we started growing together that it, it was something we both felt that we wanted and where we wanted to be. You know, and I don't know if we'll live here forever, uh, but certainly for the next 20 or 30 years, you know, uh, we, you we feel, yeah, you feel settled. You feel we, we do. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting because it wasn't until after we went back to Boston. So we went back and lived with my parents for a week to visit. I, I wanted to see my my mother's mother was was on her way to passing. She she had a hospice nurse living in the house with her, uh, where my mom had grew uh, grew, grew up in Ludlow, Massachusetts, and it was important. We knew that my 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 mom's mom, my meme, were French, right? Um, mm-hmm. my, we knew that she was on her way to passing, and uh, I wanted to be and see her one last time before before that happened, and um, and I got a chance to also in that trip also see my my father's mother, my grandmother, um, and see her one last time. Uh, this was back in 2018 and, or 2019. It's hard to say now. No, it's 2019. Um, and so we lived in, in the Northeast for two weeks. We were with my family for, for a week. And then we were in Boston for the week for the Boston marathon. And, Man, it was it was like our personally for Heather and I, our moods changed. Uh almost yeah. like 
not not unhappy, but like it was cold, it was raw. We're like, man, this stinks. We didn't <laughs> for five days straight, and we didn't how much we hated that. Yeah, we uh, we so we're like, no. So that was in April, right? And as soon as we got home, we started shopping for a house. As that's, soon as we got home, and within yeah. four weeks, we bought a house. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I haven't been in New York for a little bit. We left, um, took a break when the pandemic started. And uh, yeah. I certainly appreciate, you know, having a little bit more space and freedom, but I, I certainly miss a lot of things, you know. Um, but we don't we don't have the environment and the outdoors like you do at the moment. Yeah. So it's a different um but that reaffirmation is nice. So yeah. I wanna get into when you started, because you're the the quick rise of McCurdy Train is, is such an incredible story. And so real quickly, when did you, when did you start the business? Uh, and- officially, oddly enough. Uh, January 6th of 2016. So our two year anniversary was when we moved out here in Flagstaff and we just celebrated January 6th, our fifth year anniversary. Fifth year. Nice. Congratulations. Um, Wow. It's been five years. I was going to, for some reason I was thinking it's like four, but the last year has been so weird. Um, so Officially five years as uh, as as the the law states. I, mean, I started a little bit ahead of time in like November of 2015 as working with Jen Rosario, Ben Rosario's wife and and co yeah. of NAZ, uh, co founder I should say. Um, she was my web website developer and uh, she did a great job for me early on and um, got helped me get the business set up and. Uh, the things I needed to do, she was she was well versed in that, uh, and and yeah. But January sixth was day one officially. So, current status growth. Tell us so we get a, a clearer picture here. I love my notes here for these interviews. I have growth how question mark <laughs> <laughs> like give us give us a sense for how quickly this thing has turned into this monster. It's amazing. Well, five years. I I'd been working for Fleet Feet in July of 2015, and actually, right when I came out here for the very first time, I was just about to start my new job uh, with them. And and my job at that point was to manage all of their run programming as well as work on the floor a little bit. And the job turned out not to be the fit for me that I needed it to be. Uh, and essentially I had a nervous breakdown. It was, it was bad. Uh, and I, I was fired from my job. I I couldn't, I couldn't perform my duties. Um, and I, I leading into that job, I mean, I lasted what just a few months, but leading into that job, I had been a personal trainer, uh, for, for many, many years. And the reason I left the personal training business is because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to work in a gym environment anymore where I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning, go to the gym, be performing, so to speak, from 5.30 to, say, 10.30 or 11. Yeah. Go home from 11 to 3 and then go back to work from 4 to, say, 7 or 8 o'clock at night, doing that four or five days a week. 
I didn't want to have to do that that life anymore. And and where I worked for the the, the final five years of that was actually actually an incredibly wonderful business to work for. Uh, it was the only personal training environment I ever had where I had a 401k, vacation time, sick days. You don't hear of that in the in the personal training world. Mm. Uh, it, so the owners of that business, Big Sky Fitness Centers in Connecticut, are tremendous owners. They really treated their employees well. Um, but there were aspects of the business that I, I didn't enjoy. And yeah. even even though I was I I left there to go to run and, and, and train or to, to manage the, the programming at Fleet Feet in a specific location in Connecticut, um, I didn't want to go back to the personal training side of things. And I, oddly enough, I had interviewed at a few gyms because I, I'm a college dropout. I don't, have, I don't have a college degree. You know, I, I lasted a few years before I decided that it wasn't for me. So my, my options were limited. My, my trade, my experience was always in sales and personal training is sales. You have to be able to, to communicate with people to let them know that you are the solution to, to their problem. Was, and, that part of, was that part of the anxiety you said when you left? Uh, yeah. No, because I think it was more just me. I had a lot of things, a lot of issues personally that I had to deal with. Yeah. And, um, and I, it took me a long time. I was assaulted in college and that for a very long time ruined me. And it, it, it was the root of a lot of poor choices that I made in my life. And, and in, in that, I never really attacked the therapy that I needed to attack until years later. And, and that was, that was, that was a very much a molding thing for me. It, it, It shaped me into somebody that I didn't want to become. I never had, had intentions of becoming, but yet I still did. And until I sought treatment and therapy, that was pretty rigorous. Uh, it, it really, it, that kind of lived inside of me for a very, very long time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because of those things, uh, you know, I for anybody who's a a survivor of sexual assault, it's everyone has their own journey through it. You know, there's no right or wrong response to it. But for me, it took me a very long time to to heal. And it's, you know, my dad said when I was in college, not too long after, I didn't really put it together. He said, it's not something you're ever going to get over. It's just something you're going to, you're going to work yourself through. Right. And it took me a very long time to work through it. Very, very long time, unfortunately. Um, So leaving college, that that was was part, that was you getting out of the situation. And then you just never, you never went back to school after that. I well no no so I did I tried uh, my parents I love them to death um, yeah. they really wanted me to, to finish my degree so I transferred from UConn to a local branch of UConn the Waterbury UConn branch it's a, a local community area of UConn mm-hmm. and um, and that didn't last long and then I ended up at Naugatuck Valley Community College for about a year but I wasn't ready to be there uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with to do with the rest of my life and. I certainly wasn't in, a, in an emotional uh, state to be able to focus or handle uh, sitting in a classroom. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it. It was a physical impossibility for me to to handle that situation. And 
you know, my dad was the first one in my family to go to college, in his family, rather, I should say, to go to college. He was the first one to, and he worked himself through college. And he ended up getting a master's degree. My mom, on her side, she, she got a degree as well, and, and she used that degree throughout her entire professional career, as well as my dad. And my dad served in the Army as a, uh, um, a drill sergeant. Uh, he was in the Army Reserves. I think he was in the Army for, Army for 27 years. You know, so mm. education service was very much a part of my family, and my dad was the first one to, to do it on his side. So for him, he very much saw that or and felt that if I if I didn't have a degree, I wasn't gonna go anywhere. And that that was that was really hard to kind of live through because it is it's it, it is a challenge to find your your way without without going to school, you know. Um you have to learn a trade, you have to do things. So I found my trade in personal training. It just took a while to get there. Uh in in coaching and and I would constantly go to personal training seminars and and leadership skills and and go to sales seminars as well because that was a huge part of it uh it, it became a craft it became something i needed to I, I wouldn't say perfect but i needed to hone that skill to become successful in the personal training environment when i was working in gyms hmm. do you uh, feel like you burn the flip side is you kind of burn yourself out you're using your body all day. Plus, I think you were you were actually training pretty heavily. Right? I, yes, I. It was my birthday, October first, two thousand twelve, where I decided that inside of that year I wanted to run a marathon. Uh, I don't know why I decided that, but I did. I wanted to get back into running. I missed it. Um, the average lifespan for a personal trainer is only seven years. The average income for a trainer is is uh, fifteen dollars an hour. So it's very difficult. To make a career out of that, when that is the average, yeah. you know, it, it, many personal trainers do so as a part-time income. It's very difficult to uh, to own a home, to live in an adult in this world uh, with the things that we say that we want to be able to have, even to retire. It's yeah. very difficult to do that as a personal trainer. It's a, it's almost impossible when the average lifespan of a personal trainer is seven years. And the average income for a personal trainer is $15 an hour. Mm. It's very, very difficult. Uh, now, luckily, the final five years, that's not that was not my reality, nor was it the reality of anyone I worked with. Uh, like I said, Big Sky Fitness uh, paid very well um, for personal training. And they had many opportunities. They offered many opportunities that most facilities don't offer. But it was still very, very difficult. Yeah. What so when you started the online coaching, you know, you got the flexibility. What was your hope, you know, at that point starting yeah. out? Yeah. Uh, to pay my bills and to be able to yeah. buy groceries. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was literally all that I wanted to be able to do. I wanted to be able to pay my bills and, and buy groceries. And inside of that, um, it, that that was the entire purpose behind it. It was. That was the, the the entire focus. If I could have 30 or 40 athletes, uh, then I know that I'm going to be able to do that. Um, but it it grew. It grew quickly. Actually, the, the first coach I ever hired was maybe six weeks after I started the business. Uh, okay. Without, That's when yeah. you, you felt like, oh, man, I'm going to need help. When was the moment you you were like, holy cow, this 
this thing's this is working like this is this well, is big so michelle took over my job at at the running store and yeah. she ended up feeling very similar to how i felt about the position and the responsibilities behind that and uh and she she actually wanted she's like you know what i'm gonna do what you're doing and so we were having we were having dinner at pick up Panera Bread. I'm like, well, listen, why don't you know we live in the same town? We're going to compete against each other. Why don't we not do that? And why don't you just come work for me? I understand the business of coaching and training. I understand the financial side of things. Yeah, why don't you come work for me and with me? And I'll help you develop a clientele base. And I'll teach you the ropes on on this side of things. And let's see what we can do together. And then. Uh, another coach came around, uh, gave her her co- first coaching opportunity, Mary Johnson. Uh, it was her first opportunity in the in the coaching world. And uh, she did Mary come from personal training to she, the same background? She came from advertising and marketing. Oh, that's right. That's right. I should know that. We've talked about she it. got into it. She didn't really enjoy it very well. And then she got into the personal training and yeah. the facility. She still, I believe, works out part time. Um and then, then coaching. She was an athlete of mine, and then, then coaching came about uh, the opportunity to do that. Um, yeah. It wasn't until Esther came on board, Esther Atkins came on board, that I really saw some true potential in this as a business model for us. Yeah. Um, I really, I felt like she had some real, real strong potential. I actually, we, we have been friends for a few years on on uh, uh, Facebook. We bumped into each other every once in a while at a at a road race, and you know she's a, a top notch professional. She was 13th in Boston, and I'm just kind of this peon, <laughs> and uh, you know, so it was, it was a big deal for me to like yeah. talk to her and say I wish her luck type of thing, and and uh, and then we 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 became friendly, and I and I said, listen, I don't know what your plans are, but you might consider this. I don't know, you know, what our business is going to look like in the next two or three or four years, but why don't we have a chat about it? And and we did, and and she decided that she she would come on board, um, and then Tim Ritchie came on within a month or so after that, uh, and I didn't realize, but at the time, I was for a while I was coaching Tim's girlfriend Kirsten, and I didn't know that Tim Ritchie was her boyfriend. I didn't know that. She would say, oh, my boyfriend's a runner. He's pretty good. But I didn't know that it was Tim. Um, and uh, But yeah, so at that point, once Esther and Tim came on board, that's when my brain started, okay, either I'm really in this or it's just going to be something I do. It just started snowballing. You know, professional athletes started getting wins that uh, this was an opportunity to make a living but still be able to run professionally, but not have their income be tied to their performance or contract or anything like that. So that's kind of kind of how it how it got going. And how how were you able to get the some of these great coaches like pretty early on? Like it, that came pretty quickly. It did. Um, Esther and I, like I said, we had a conversation on Facebook and then on the phone. Uh, Tim was just happenstance. I just happened to be coaching his girlfriend at the time. So that's how that happened. Uh, <laughs> that helps. But yeah. And then I, I saw, I saw Sarah Crouch ran well at the Chicago marathon. I believe that she was the second American, maybe third, oh no, maybe top five American at Chicago. And I said, man, like 
what a cool thing to see maybe if she would want to come on board. So I reached out to her and um, at the time she was actually already a coach elsewhere and I didn't even know. And um, so she said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to be interested in this, but my husband, Michael, has been looking to get into coaching for a very long time. And he's an assistant coach at a university right now. So, you know, would you be interested in talking with Michael? I'm like, I, I've never heard of him because I just didn't. And I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> and, uh, and we had a great conversation. And, and he came on board. And then in between Michael and I talking and him coming on board, Sarah actually decided that she did want to come on board. And she was able to work it out with the other coaching services she worked for. And um, and then she has since uh, years been just working with us. Uh, and, but yeah, I mean, Michael, he never coached before in this environment, but he had many years experience of coaching. And um, I mean, gosh, he was able to leave college coaching completely and be full time with us within a year. Wow. How many coaches now after five years? 28. Wow. I didn't realize yeah. that high now. 28. And what are some of the numbers like in such a short time? Um, what are the, some of the numbers that you like to, to promote in terms of well, how big you guys have gone? It's, it's not so much how big we've gotten. It's that we've seen great results with the folks that we work with and that we serve regardless mm -hmm. of ability. So like, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of in, in in this business. Success can be defined by a lot of different things, especially when it comes to business. Success can often be defined by finances, but I, I, I'm really trying not to look at it that way. What I'm really trying to look at is that our first year we had eight athletes qualify for the Boston Marathon and run the Boston Marathon, and this past year. I couldn't tell you how many people decided not to run it, even though they qualified. <laughs> you know, um, we had 197 decide that they want to qualify, or not not to qualify that decide that they want to run because they qualified. 197 in 2020 said, "Yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to run Boston." I think the number that we had was well over 400, though. And what's, um, what's crazy to me is is also the the um, You've got the people, you know, people qualifying for Boston, but how many did you, well, some of them were coaches, right? But you had a lot of athletes qualify for the Olympic trials. I mean, the, yeah. the scale, the diversity of your, of your athletes is pretty wide, right? Yeah. We, uh, so we, we actually just, just spoke about this the other day. Um, in 2016, we had eight qualify for Boston and zero at the Olympic trials. Zero McCurdy trained representatives were, were in LA at the time. Um, and then fast forward to 2020. Yeah, we had, we had like eight or nine coaches, uh, but I actually coached some of them, uh, that qualified yeah. for the Olympic trials. Uh, but we had 25 qualify overall for the trials. We had a few athletes that represent, uh, that had the opportunity to represent team USA, uh, whether on the track or in cross country, uh, and, uh, in the marathon at the world championships. Only one actually said yes, and, and two actually declined uh, the invitation. But, I mean, the growth that we saw it, it, from, from a, uh, an athletic standpoint was just tremendous. I mean, yeah, some, some had already qualified, but many did not. 
You know, like one of my athletes, Jules, when she reached out to me in March of 2000 or uh, December of 2016, literally on her questionnaire, it said, it's my pipe dream to qualify for the Olympic trials. And at the time, she went from 335 down to 305 on her own. So she had she had already seen some great results on her own. And to go from 335 to 305 is no no small feat. But to go from that athlete to go from 305 to 245 like that's whoa like that that's some remarkable improvement so she Uh, started with you guys at 305 she started with us at 305 and um and then she uh she ended up qualifying at cim and she qualified with a 244 34 um and she got a chance to run at the olympic trials and she did and she did wonderfully she didn't go out there to race it she just ran it she jumped from 305 or did she have some between that? She had some between. So she went okay. 305, 302, 257, 252, and yeah. then 244. She stole the, to me, because I was at the trials, I was on the course with Andre. We were taking photos and obviously it was a loop course. We, we hit a lot of spots and uh, yeah. honestly, I mean, what an exciting day, but like she stole the show for... Us, she literally every time she came by, she was smiling, and yeah. and we like it got to the point where like Andre's like, there she is, who is this? She's smiling again. Look, here she comes. She's smiling. He's like, I gotta get a photo, you know. And he kept taking pictures of her, and that just like I, that's funny. Was that's that kind I, of I got that, you know, like for so many, like Crystal Bacon, one of one of my athletes that qualified. It, she 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 had no more time you know like she had missed the qualification yeah. in in grandma's the, the season before by like 34 seconds you know or 40 seconds or so uh no it wasn't that we were that off we were only off by like one and a half seconds a mile it's not that much you know and and then she came back in in uh in in uh indianapolis and qualified and that was that was a lifetime achievement. It, and never in high school or college did she ever qualify for a national championship level event. Wow. And the first thing that she gets it done is for the Olympic trials. You yeah, know, like I know, like for these moments, for a lot of athletes, like it could be such a letdown, right? On like if you don't perform well, like you build up to that moment for so long. Yeah. Um, so it it can be kind of a heartbreaker um, for many. But yeah, it, we just appreciated the fact, like you could see it on her face. Like you're telling yeah. me like that was something that, you know, it, you could just see it on her face. She was just so happy to be there. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it, but what is your opinion on the standards? Um, and you should that change? Like what was your feeling on uh, the, the Atlanta, basically? Atlanta, I mean, it was magical. It was remarkable and I loved it. Uh, I wish 2024 could have an environment like that. I don't think that's going to be the reality. That's not what I want. I I don't want that. I want as many. I would love for the standards to stay the same because I think we'd honestly have about 1,500 people qualified, men and women. <laughs> but I also believe that if the standards stay the same, we'd have about 1,500 people or so qualify, if not more. And that is not something that any club could possibly foot the bill for the entire concept of how to manage and run it would have to change completely and it would not be a level playing field 
in terms of those top level competitors to those who are just squeaking in. Uh, they wouldn't be able to have bottle service for 1,500 people. Not a chance in heck. You know, it's not happening. So but what did, do I think? Did any sorry, of your athletes also say that it was like way too tight in the beginning? Like it was too crowded? Uh, like some people, I know a lot of people fell. Um, I was curious about that too. People that fell, um, I, not none of my athletes did. Uh, the athletes that I had racing the, the event, um, they were fine, they, but they were in the top 100. Top, you know, we had Sam finish 22nd. We had Kate Landau finish 14th at 43 years old. You know, they were fine. Yeah. Uh, they raced very well. Um, Nick was 81st and, and Lindsay Nelson was 81st. Um, they did very well. I think, um, I think in the, in, the, in the first mile or two, it was a little chaos for some. And then I think there was a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, you know, tight turns or whatnot. Anybody can trip and fall at any point. I mean, shoot, even Ned fell the final steps of the Rio marathon uh, in, in, in 2016 at the Olympics. You know, um, and no one was around him. You know, he just tripped. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I think, um, I think though, I mean, but there are certainly some, uh, Caitlin Goodman from the BAA, she fell pretty hard. And, uh, that was early on and no doubt, no doubt it was because of the chaos, uh, that was in the midst of so many people. It would just so happen to be that my athletes got lucky and didn't get tripped up. Yeah. 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 So you think if, if they drop the, the B a, a couple minutes that the field size is probably going to be the same again or no, do you think, think that drop they, a what's that? I think, I think it's going to drop by a lot and just with a couple minutes, you don't think it will elevate and, and get more people out and, and that the, that they'll have the same field with just like two minutes. Or do you think that that's a threshold that I don't think it's going to be two minutes. Uh, That's the thing. Uh, I believe it's, it's in my, in my opinion, uh, and I don't agree with it, but I just think this is likely to happen. And I don't know. We should find out soon, but um, I believe that it's more than likely that we see the women's standard go to 237 or faster and the men's standard go to 215 or faster. I, I see that as more of a reality than a two minute. Yeah. And that in and of itself changes the game completely. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, I, I shouldn't even say necessarily. I don't agree with that. I just think that is likely. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. No, I, d- I mean, it was in so many ways, it was great for the sport, right? The, oh, what we saw yeah. building up to Atlanta, uh, not just at Atlanta, just the whole buildup, you know? Every, every race was, okay, who's going to qualify today? Yeah. Who, you know, who, who's out here? Who's going for it? Who is going to become the local hero that we get to write about? You know, like I, I love that. And uh, it gave me as a coach, it gave me, I had more, I, I, I think I had more athletes at the Olympic trials than any other team in the entirety at the, of the Olympic trials. I had 14. Yeah. I was going to say there was no other group, right? You had to have the most people. Well, there were there were there were professional teams out there with thirteen and fourteen. We okay. in, so can't really count our twenty five in that realm because of the nature of how we operate. But right? they still barely. You're saying the most you saw was twenty seven, or was there no? Any? We had twenty five. Um, 
And in that I had, I personally had 14. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, 2016, we had zero, you know? So, and, and, and personally where I want to go is I want to help as many people qualify for 2024. And that starts now. And how, like have, how have you years. been able to maintain, you've been able to maintain like, Oh, McCurdy train. Like that's, that's an elite, that's an elite group. It seems like you haven't gotten that label. You still, I mean, what's the typical athlete? How has it changed? Or it's still, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I think it's it, we haven't changed our vision. Esther said this after about a year or so. I think she saw some of the writing on the wall, uh, and she said to me, and in some some version of this, don't change what it is you've created here because what what it is this could be could be very impactful for a lot of people and i took that to heart because mm. there's there's no reason why my athlete ronda who's a nicu nurse working insane hours especially this year with covid uh or my athlete melissa yaki who is of the same profession a nicu nurse oddly enough um or stephen Boampain, who who broke three for the first time in Frankfurt, Germany uh, this past year uh, or a year ago, a year and a half ago. You know, like there's, there's no reason why these athletes deserve less care and attention and consideration with their training than the athletes I have like John Ranieri or Sam Chalanga or Angie Nickerson or Crystal Harris, Kate Landau. There's no reason why they deserve less simply because their vision of success isn't on the same pace per mile as a professional. So it's, it's really our sincere hope and, and, and focus point that regardless of level of ability that we're doing our best to serve every athlete that we can, you know, I have athletes that run walk. I've got athletes personally that, uh, their success point is 30 minutes in a 5k. Awesome. Let's go after it. You know, don't, don't give me the, the nonsense approach that you can't because I know you can. So let, what do we got to do to get there? You know, and that's the same approach that I take with the professional level athlete. I, I just wrote a note to my athletes actually the other day about getting their blood work done. I said, listen, it, it, I, I'm telling these, the same notes to my professional level athletes that it matters. It Understanding where your iron levels, your vitamin D, your vitamin B12, understanding these things matter. And it shouldn't be something you get tested every few years. This is something we should test for at least twice a year, but in my opinion, closer to three or four times a year. And I'd really like you to take some time to invest in yourselves to understanding what these numbers mean. So if it's important enough for a professional, why are your dreams and goals not important enough for that to matter too? Mm. And also... Taking that approach matters. Yeah, you were you used the word care, and I've, I've, this has stood out to me, and and talking with you and hearing you talk um, in the past, I, I've noticed under our care is a term you you tend to use, which I don't hear others use, like in this in this space. So tell tell me why are the are those. Are, are those words, is there a reason behind that when you say we've got X amount of athletes under our care? And I, I'd love to hear more about that. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a perfect person by any stretch. I make mistakes, you know, I'm a human. Um, but I do try to acknowledge my humanity and when I'm wrong, I, you know, I try to acknowledge that and say it and, and move on. From it. Um, I certainly have my opinions and whatnot, but a lot of, a lot of me saying under our care and the McCurdy family, it stems from what I experienced in college. And mm. when I sat with a, with a coach from school and it, you know, in the team meetings, we're a family, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a united front. We're a family. We treat each other as a family here on this team. And then I'm going through a personal hell and a coach tells me to my face that, well, I've made a decision not to involve myself into my athletes' personal lives. Mm. That, that to me, that person was no longer a coach to me. To me, coaching isn't just about the workouts. It's not about, uh, yes, a coach needs to know their science. They need to know, and, and they're always, they should always be learning about these things. But it, it's not about workouts because anybody can work somebody out. It, it's about the relationship of how the workouts play a role in that person's life. What do they have going on? And when an athlete divulges to me or expresses to me that they're only sleeping three to four hours a night because they're stressed or they're anxious and they, 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 they're not resting, they're not recovering. Well, then that to me is a red flag that that person needs a different concept of training completely than I would give somebody who has a normal life or, or, or not facing that specific adversity. And, and what do we need to do to ensure that we are thinking about their health and their safety first? before we're thinking about the, the end result of a, of a time on a clock. So, yeah, so it is, I mean, I was curious, like, is it a reflection of your experience? And it's really like the, your, the anti experience or what you experienced. And it's amazing that you ended up becoming a coach when you had such a bad experience. I mean, I, I had sort of the opposite where, I was never, I knew I wasn't trained well as a younger athlete. Um, I almost had like too much information. This guy was a sprint coach. He was a football coach. Um, the training was terrible. It was detriment. I knew it was detrimental to my career as an athlete, but he cared. Like yeah. he was there for me. He, he was, would do anything to support me. And I think that ironically, you know, kind of led me to becoming yeah. a coach and it's cool that you still ended up getting into you know being a coach despite that because that's pretty brutal the for that that was my experience that might not have been some of my teammates experience right my experience uh, but at the same time that that was my experience uh i also had amazing coaches that i developed relationships with one being my high school coach for cross country Okay. Uh, Arlie Duff. Uh, I still consider him one of my best friends. Uh, he's one of the most successful high school coaches in the nation's history. In girls track, uh, women's track for high school, I think he's only lost like five times in 23 years. Wow. Like, his record is remarkable. He was on a streak, I believe, of 189 wins and zero losses. Right? Like, But more than his record was his devotion to his athletes. He would take 
this is a guy who who was a uh, or is a special education uh, teacher, uh, works hands on special needs, uh, who doesn't make a lot of money doing that that work uh, in, in that school district. Doesn't get paid a lot for coaching, right? Not really at all. Actually, in cross country, where other schools might pay the head coach a salary for the boys and the girls, he only made one salary for for actually coaching both teams, which is ridiculous. But he still showed up. He showed up every day. And he would show up on the weekends. His practices, he'd have a distance practice, a sprinting practice, a throws practice, and a keep practice on a Saturday. Yeah, you know, he's getting paid thirty four hundred dollars for a season of work, and he's spending Saturday and Sunday like that. So, it, giving everything of himself. So, his athletes, and he produced more Division One scholarship level athletes than all of the other sports in that school combined. <laughs> type of devotion that he's he's given. So, when I I had that as as a role model, okay. I also had another guy, Jim Duncan who was an older gentleman who passed away this year. Um, uh, he, 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 tra- like he met me uh, on the track one day and he, I asked him, I, I was like, are, are you pole vaulting? Cause here's this old guy walking on the track with a pole vaulting pole. I'm like, are you pole vaulting? He's like, yeah. He's like, will you teach me how to do it? He's like, okay. You know, th- he was 67 at the time, I believe 66. He's pole vaulting. He's good. He was the U.S. Math or U.S. age group champion in the decathlon. He he taught me decathlon. You know, he took time out of his life for no money, and and he traveled with me to the U.S. Junior National Championship my senior year, and uh, on his own dime, and I was eleventh place. You know, I was fourth out of high school, and this guy taught me those things. You know, I, as much as my experience in college was horrendous. Um. Those coaches taught me how to treat athletes and many coaches beyond my own coach is Tim Ritchie, you know, and, and so much about how I am as an athlete uh, and, and I've learned to be a coach, a better coach because of, of who Tim is uh, and all, all the coaches that, that we have on staff. It's not just, okay, we just oh here's the next coach. No, we, we have a really good relationship of learning, of respect. And as much as I'm hopefully guiding them, rest assured, they're guiding me the same way. Oh, I love coaches who have coaches. Do um, We'll talk a little bit about who are your co- – I mean, a lot of your coaches are fast. A lot of um, – not all of your coaches are like pro athletes, right? They're, um, but who are your coaches and why? How are you – are you are you always trying to transfer that, or do you feel like you're picking out those over time that sort of reflect these values that you're talking about, or how does it generally work? Yeah. So, number one, to to bring on somebody in any business, there needs to be a need for that, right? So we're not. It's not like we're always hiring new people, uh, but as McCurdy trained sure. grows, and as the coaches fill up in their athlete load so that they don't feel like they can handle more. Well, if there's still a need coming in, Hey, I want to talk to you about coming on board as an athlete. Well, if that's still happening, which it has been, well, then I need coaches that are going to be in line with how we serve in our product 
uh, or our concept of, of, of coaching um, and processes, uh, I'm always on the lookout for that next person that might fit the mold. Um, so, yeah, if we didn't have a need for 28 coaches, then I wouldn't have 28. But fact of the matter is, as we've grown over five years, we can't, I can't serve everybody. You know, I'm not going to be the best coach for every single athlete. You know, I have my own way about me. I have my own personality. How I talk isn't always going to serve everybody the best. So having coaches with different personalities and different abilities of presentation, I think, matters. But I'll say this, too. Um, it is shocking how many people do apply to be a coach. And the first thing out of their out of their mouth is, oh, I, I'm looking for money. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I've, I've never applied for a job with that as the first thing out of my mouth, but um, generally that's a disqualification unless, yeah, they see you guys growing. I mean, it's, I guess it could be flattering in a sense, right? They're, they're like, sure. Man, if I go to McCurdy train, I know I'm finally going to pick up some athletes, you know? Um, yeah. But, and I get that. Um, but right. you know, there, there is a, there, I'm looking for a person who wants to serve. They don't need to know it all. They don't need to be perfect in every realm because I certainly am not. You know, I've I've made mistakes from a novice to a professional. It's, I, I don't always have the answers, but I do believe that the athletes that I, I work with know that I, I deeply care about what it is we're striving for and that whether they fail or whether they succeed, I'm going to be there with a hug or a virtual conversation. Uh, depending on, on the circumstance, you know, that we're, we're going to figure it out. Um, so when I find app, uh, coaches that have that ability, that's what, I, that's what draws. Like when, when Pardon came on board, we didn't need Pardon. Not, not then. Uh, I had just brought on Michael, Sarah, and Ryan Donor. Uh, so bringing on a fourth person right away, when those coaches still had a ton of availability, there was, there was no reason to bring on Pardon, but as soon as I spoke to Pardon, <laughs> I mean, I watched a two-minute video um, on YouTube, and it was an interview, kind of a preview to a twenty-minute video video about Pardon, about his journey. And um, I, I, as soon as I watched that, I, I, I didn't even read his resume. I didn't even care. I said, "That's the type of person I want." I still never read his resume. <laughs> um, but that's the type of person that I want. And he's now been with us for four years. That's awesome. We'll talk quickly about how you guys are matching. Um, you know, if, if someone comes through and, oh, okay, 5K marathon and this person's a mom, right? Are there there's some yeah. easy ways to kind of match where you feel like these will be a good fit. Um, do you guys go beyond that? Or is it really like, yeah. listen, we we're yeah. careful about who we bring on. Um, we've got some general matching, but otherwise I'm comfortable, you know, distributing these athletes across the board. I speak to every inquiry that reaches out. You do. Okay. Every single one, unless a coach has already had a private conversation and then the coach reaches out to me, Hey, expect that this person is going to be signing up. Uh, send their inquiry or send their questionnaire over my way. Right. right. Um, yeah. That happens, but it doesn't happen all the time. It happens maybe like once or twice a month. I literally speak 
on the phone with every single inquiry. They, I, I talk with them. I generally text them rather than email back. And I have a conversation with them. And sometimes the conversation, it leads uh, to, to the place that, hey, you know what? I'm not sure that this is the right environment for you to come on board as an athlete. Based on what you're saying and what it is you need and what it is you think you want to do, that's not in line with how we, we operate. But here, here's a, a service or two that might fit you better. I actually just had that conversation the other day and uh, sent, sent a, a colleague of mine, Thomas, uh, uh, that athlete. I, I hope they reach out to him. But for the most part, we have a conversation. I get to know them a little bit, what it is they're looking to accomplish over the next year, two years. Um, more so than what event are they trying to train for, but really to get a chance to understand their personality a little bit and what they might be looking for in a coach. Mm-hmm. Because if I can answer those questions, I can, because I know the coaches so well, I can then guide that athlete towards, well, these are the three or four coaches that we have that are available that would fit what it is you're looking for, but also match the personality that you think you might want. Mm. And I think that matters. Uh, it's not just, well, this is our 5K coach or this is our marathon coach. None of that. It's, all, it's almost all about what are you trying to accomplish, but w- how do you learn? Is it more email-based? Is it more uh, uh, commu- uh, app-based? Or do you like to have a conversation? Are, are you looking for a drill sergeant? Are you looking for somebody who is a little bit more lovey-dovey and a, uh, a little bit more communicative in a friendship manner? Like, what type of personality do you think you're going to respond best to? Because these are the coaches that are going to fit that mold. And I'm not always right on that. Right. Know, we do have some coach swapping from time to time, but but for the most part, it that's 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 our matching concept. That's great. I want to um I want to talk about the micro marathons. Uh, yeah. And I think there was a post. I don't have it in front of me. Stephen Kirsch mentioned something I saw after he did the JFK uh, 50. And I think he, the gist of it was that he felt conflicted, um, you know, about having an event during this time, but also, you know, obviously running, especially ultra marathons, right, are, are pretty safe compared yes. to sporting events. Um but the idea that, you know, people were traveling to it and, yeah. uh, you know, that's a tough one. So um, obviously our sport, it's it's a major sport and you want it to go on and you, we should be able to adapt in, in certain instances, right? There's some people would say, listen, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is getting worse. Um, you know, we got to pause. We got to be safe. The micro marathons, it's interesting. I want to hear more about the concept considering all this and and ways that you're adapting and, and keeping your athletes motivated at this time. Sure. So for, for the athletes that wanted uh, to to run a marathon, we felt that we, we really didn't trust and still don't trust these monster marathons with five, 6,000 people. Uh, <laughs> 1,500, 2,000 people. We just, we don't trust the environment, so to speak. And often is the case, is a race that size isn't really going to have too often uh, insanely strict COVID protocols in place, right? So 
we knew that we wanted to host some events for our, our athletes to have an opportunity to qualify for Boston or possibly qualify for for U.S. championships over the next few years, or, or even just get their first events done in an official manner. Uh, but we knew that if we only hosted one, that we would be limiting our athletes and be forcing them to, to travel. And we didn't want that to happen. So we decided to host these small 30 to 100 person events, 125, I believe, is our maximum event to where our athletes are most centrally located so they don't have to fly. So they could just drive an hour or two, right? It's no more risky than going to Target, right? So in that respect, we're providing as a safe a, a, of an environment as possible. We're going to have COVID protocols in place. Uh, social distancing, mask before, mask after. If you're if you're unwilling to wear a mask, sorry, you're not running. During the end, you're out of here. Type of thing, you know. Uh, so we're going to be very strict on the, on those protocols. But it's also important to recognize that we don't want our athletes or any participants to be flying to any of these events. We can't prevent any of it because right. there's just no way to really prevent that. But by offering Michigan, upstate New York, Connecticut, South Carolina, Alabama, Texas. By offering these locations, it allows people to be able to drive and right. give them an opportunity. But also, we're not trying, this isn't a business thing, you know? Like, we're not trying to make money off of this. We're, there's going to be some to be made because we are working hard for it, but sure. it's, it's, it's small for a reason. It's going to be very limited in exposure, right? Uh, and we're also based off of local environments. Um, if we, we didn't we didn't even take payment yet for any of these races, I think we, we start with Texas uh, this weekend, giving the athlete that we put them on a waiting list first, and then we're going to take payment uh, once we're nearer to an event uh, being, uh, taking place. So that way we know we're a little bit closer to the event, maybe six, eight weeks out. We're a little bit closer to the event before we even take payment. So athletes don't feel like okay i've got to i've got to register for another race and then oh well now that race is canceled you know i feel yeah. like if our races get canceled no no races are going off because they're so yeah. small so the so there's five of them how many are there well there there are uh there's connecticut there's there's upstate new york uh there's south carolina there's alabama there's texas there's michigan there's so there's six right but uh, depending, <laughs> uh, so we're considering adding a seventh uh, in another location as well. And when do they start? Like, what are the dates on them? March 6th is uh, North Texas, Dallas area. Uh, okay. That's our first one. And then March 20th and 21st is South Carolina and Alabama. Um, so those are our first three, and they're coming up in, in a few months, right? Eight, seven to, to nine weeks, essentially. Um, and then we have in April... Uh, we have Connecticut on April 18th and Michigan on April 25th. Um, and Michigan, I think, just sold out, quote unquote, for the wait list. Um, and then in that, uh, uh, we have upstate New York. Um, so I, I believe Michigan, Connecticut, and upstate New York are the, are the events that are, are sold out, meaning the wait list is reached. You can still register and get on the wait list. But if you register for those events that are that are already full, you would just be kind of the next in line type wow. of concept.
And and these are located, it sounds like near coaches that you have, right? And you said yes. you athletes in those areas. And, and then how did you come up with the, the courses? These are already measured. Um, no, we had, to measure them. <laughs> we had to measure them. We had to certify them. We're in the process of, of finishing up a few certifications this week and next wow. uh, courses. Uh, but they're, they're, to, in order for uh, an event to be a Boston qualifier, Number one, the race has to be USATF certified. Yeah. Uh, number two, it has to be it doesn't have to be electronically timed, but um, it ha- it should be electronically timed uh, by a professional company. It has to have a minimum of, I believe, four athletes in the event, um, and it needs to be advertised. So those are the requirements for for the Boston Athletic Association for the Boston Marathon. Right. So that we, 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 we meet those standards. Um, and it, it's an investment, right? We've got to pay the timing company, the, the permits, the fees, uh, the measuring, you know, yeah, that, that's, wow. that, that's stuff. So these are legit, man. And when, um, what's, uh, what are the courses? What are they like? Did you guys just cool. kind of, did you try and, um, what was the goal in terms of designing each course as fast as possible or, um, no, I mean, we want it to be flat or moderately flat. We want it to be contained, meaning a looped environment. Uh, because if we try to go out and back, we have to worry about, especially with a with a with a large course, uh, a long course, or, or a large scale in person race. You have to focus on security and road closures and all these things that cost a lot more money. So. We decided we wanted these events to be either on a rail trail or a known environment uh, where we didn't have to invest that much money on closing a lot of roads, right? So these are all looped courses, anywhere from 2.8 to uh, uh, five-mile loop courses, where might be a little bit boring, but they're also going to be able to have aid uh, not not far from them. They'll have water bottle stations. They'll be responsible for their own nutrition in terms of gels or hydration or whatever that might be. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna have water for them as well. We'll have trash laid out so they're not littering. We'll have designated trash uh, barrels so they that's where they'll they be, be tossing as they're running by. Um, yeah, so we're pretty enclosed. Uh, the idea is BQ though. The idea is yeah, that's the kind of the focus point. We'll have a few athletes that are much faster than a BQ. And, and looking to break three on the female side, looking to break 230 on the male side on a, in a few races. But we'll also have a few athletes that are looking to get it done. And that might be four, four and a half hours. That's awesome. So do you feel like post-pandemic, the marathon project, events like these, do you think they'll go away? Or do you think this, because of the pandemic, you're going to see more of this in the future because of these big, big road races? Um, people are looking for different events, more interesting. Well, I don't think our events, McCurdy trained events would continue or will continue in this fashion. Yeah. Uh, if major races come back in a safe manner, I don't think because there's no need. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Again, it's not, it's not your business focus, but, um, yeah. events like this, you know, in the marathon project, do you see, um, smaller organizations doing this type of stuff to set up races or come up with just, you know, where it's more flexibility, right. Versus lining up with. 
events like the Marathon Project can't exist, especially if they get major sponsorship. Now, I think a lot of people forget how much it costs them to host this event. They paid reservation fee, the property, the road closures. Uh, sure. the, the drug testing was probably five or $6,000 a person, you know, for any American getting tested. Right. I mean, there's a lot of costs. It, it probably cost them 150 to $200,000 to do it somewhere in that range. That's a lot of money, you know? Um, so in all of that, um, I hope that we find more events in that realm. Um, I think I think it's a very much a missed opportunity. We are of the mindset that we need to adapt, and yeah. as a business, as as a as a community, if we don't adapt, then we run the risk of of uh, of falling of falling apart essentially. So, it's I think it's important for our athletes to understand that we are working very very hard behind the scenes to continue to provide care that is beyond just workouts. What can we do so that you can find success, whether it be virtual events between the Mercury Mile Race Series that we provided in the spring and, um, and then the 5K, 10K series we had in the fall and now the Mercury Marathon, micro marathons that we have. You know, we, there, there are aspects behind all of this that we're working four, five, six, nine months ahead of time. You know, what, this is what we're doing now, but my brain is already, this is what we're doing now, but what are we doing uh, for June, July, and August. Like, I'm already on that. Yeah, events are a ton of work, man. I appreciate you. You guys have really taken it to another level there versus, you know, virtual races and, and stuff. So it's it's impressive the way you're kind of setting it up for BQs. Um, pretty incredible. We wish you guys luck with that stuff. We're going to help, you know, get the word out. Um, but James, I, I appreciate you sharing your story and hearing more about the business. I think we're all working hard um, in all, all of our own respects. You know, 2020 was not easy. Um, and it doesn't look like 2021 is going to be easier. But I think <laughs> we know a little bit more of what to expect and what is required of us. You know, we didn't yeah. know what was required of us in the spring. But there's no excuse for not knowing now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, just as a community, forget running for a moment, just in working with each other and helping each other. You know, it's there, there's a responsibility that we all have to to treat each other with dignity and respect. And I think in the midst of chaos, it can be easy to forget a lot of that. Yeah, it's like paralyzing. Um, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story today. It's been yeah. great, great chatting. Yeah, my, my pleasure, my honor. Thank you for having me on. I've been over here